Uh, I wonder what we are living for in our lives. Um, If you were to spend a day with an Olympic rower and you watch what they did, uh, you couldn't miss what they were living for. For every part of their um, day is marked out for training. Every calorie they eat is, is carefully planned. Um, everything they do is, is day after day the same routines um, all building towards one great moment in the next Olympics that's what they're living for and everything is organised around it so what about us? Um, a survey was done in America of Christians in America and um, they were asked to describe what they were living for and these are the top items that came out what are they living for? good health, successful career Comfortable lifestyle, functional family. Wonder how different it would be in the UK. Uh, last Thursday, apparently, was Poetry Day. Um, and so, a bit of Wordsworth for this evening. This is what the poet Wordsworth said. We're going to wrestle with this. He said the, in a poem, that all the rest of the poem said, but he said this. Uh, the world is too much with us. The world is too much with us. That's the case, isn't it? Is there really that distinction between what we as Christians are living for? Not just what we say, but what we're actually doing functionally with our lives. Is there much distinction between us and the rest of the world? Now we have to ask, don't we? Where, where, where is the, the fire in our prayers and the, the zeal in our witness and the earnestness in our repentance and the depth in our studies and the heights in our praises? Now, isn't it the case? What one writer said, isn't it the case that we are breathless with busyness, comfortable with complacency? We just kind of tick along and, and gradually our souls are being sucked dry on a diet of dust. And our faith becomes bland and our saltiness isn't very salty and our light is dim. And Wordsworth is on the money, isn't he? The world is too much with us. Or maybe I overstate the case a little too negatively. Maybe. Maybe I do, but the answer, the answer to all of this comes in our passage this evening as we begin to work through the book of Acts and we come to these first 11 verses, these 11 verses that set the plan for the rest of what is to follow. Um, Look at verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. The second book we have now, um, Luke wrote the gospel for Theophilus. His first book that told about the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, his actions, up to his death, his resurrection. Um, and then finally, um, to his ascension. Uh, and now Luke is going to pick up that story to tell us what happened next. The first book, he says, is about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the second book is about all that Jesus continued to do and to teach now that he is up in heaven. Now this passage we have begins to set the scene for what Luke is going to tell us. It begins to set the scene for the great Pentecost megadrama that's going to come up in Acts 2. We could spend a long time in Acts 2. We're not going to, but we could do. Um, but that, that's coming up, so he's setting the scene for that. And this passage also sets the plan for the spread of the good news. You see it in verse 8. The mission for the church is to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem first. And we see that in Acts 1-7. to And then Judea and Samaria in Acts 8 to 12. And then it begins to spill over and spread out as the message goes on towards the end of the earth. And Acts will conclude with the Apostle Paul in the capital of the known world in Rome preaching the gospel. Our our passage has three movements in it. And we're going to look at them. We have the Lord Jesus is going up. The Lord's Spirit is coming down. 
and the Lord's people are going out. Three movements, so we'll look at them. First of all, the Lord Jesus is going up. That's how our passage is wrapped up. Um, The going of Jesus. Verse 2, this kind of transition point between Luke's two books. The first book, up to the point that Jesus was taken up. Second book begins at that point. Uh, But but then when we come down to verse 11, the angels speak to the disciples and they say, this same Jesus who has been taken from you up into heaven. The same word, taken up from you. Same word in verse 2 and verse 11. The passage begins and ends with the going up of Jesus. And what is this going up? A picture of those disciples standing there. They, they cut a pretty forlorn group at the beginning of verse 11, don't they? Now these, these men just staring at the sky. Abandoned, perhaps. No, is, is this it for these disciples? Now, it wasn't much long um, before this that the, the angel was at the tomb saying, He is not here. Now, is that now what the disciples are left with? He is not here. That, that he's gone. Uh, at the end of Luke's Gospel, he tells of two disciples travelling on, on the road to Emmaus, and they are downcast because they hoped Jesus would save them, but he is not here. Now, of course, that's not what is happening, but we can think like it, can't we? We, we read about Jesus in the Bible, the wonderful things he did, the wonderful things he said, and we think, oh, wouldn't it be great if we were there? But we weren't there, we are here, and our sense is that neither is he. He is not here. And and history tells it, doesn't it? Because Luke, recording the history, he says Jesus appeared for 40 days and then he left, went away. He's taken up, taken from them. And that legacy has been passed down to us, that there was a saviour, but he left us. And, And it's a little doubt that niggles in the back of our minds, doesn't it? I'm alone. He's not here. Well, let's have a look. Where is he? Verse 11, the angels say, he is taken from you into heaven. Heaven, what is that? Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created a glory space where his special presence of blessing could reside. The tangible presence of God and his manifold glories. Jesus is taken up into heaven. At verse 10, it says this cloud kind of covers him. Um, no, verse 9 even. He was taken up before them and a cloud hid him from their sight. A cloud which kind of covers this heavenly transition as Jesus is gone from view. Gone to heaven, gone to this. Heaven is a different state to earth, isn't it? You can't travel to heaven on a rocket. It's a, a further dimension of reality. That's where Jesus has gone. And, and Luke's simplicity is breathtaking, really, isn't it? He was taken up into heaven. And one writer says, it is as simple and as difficult as that. Taken up into heaven. That's where he's gone, but how, how did he go? How did he go? Well, th- this I think is really important for us to grasp hold of. Now, if we track back again to the beginning of Luke's Gospel, we have the, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary and saying, you will conceive and give birth to a son, you're to call him Jesus, he'll be great, he'll be called the Son of the Most High. Now we know this, don't we? God himself became a man. Um, He was conceived. He grew in the womb of Mary. He waddled and he toddled like the rest of us. God, now also man, not stopping being God, but now becoming what he had not been. Fully God, fully man. And he demonstrated the reality of it and what he did and what he said. It's this Jesus, the same Jesus who is taken up. It's not 
the incarnation being undone. We shouldn't ever think like that. It's not the kind of, as the Son of God goes up, he kind of puts aside his humanity. No, the, the Son of God is going up with the humanity that he took to himself. Jesus, fully God, fully man, ascends to heaven. The, the physical, fleshly human, for the first time, approaches the non-physical domain of glory. Jesus has gone up into heaven. How did he go up? Look at verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The man who went up is the man who suffered. The one who told his disciples, the son of man must suffer. He must be killed and rise on the third day. The angel at the tomb said, he's not here. He has risen and the disciples have met him. The one who was dead, he's now living. They've touched him and eaten with him and they're convinced by many proofs that he's alive and he's spoken about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is Luke's kind of shorthand for the gospel message, the inbreaking of God's final restoration of everything. That that return to the paradise conditions of the beginning, the, the end of the badness and the sadness. Now see, it's on the promise of the kingdom that the must of the Messiah's suffering rests. He must suffer. The kingdom of God isn't open to those who have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's no good news in the proclamation of a kingdom to which we have no access. But the good news of the kingdom is that the Messiah has come and he must suffer. As Isaiah foresaw, the one would come, the child born, the son who is given. God himself entering into our state and inhabiting our lost and forsaken humanity. And then in our flesh, taking our sin and offering himself to be crushed for our iniquities and to take the punishment that was due to our sin so that we might have peace. At the end of Luke's gospel, he explains to his disciples, Jesus explains to his disciples that the whole message of scripture is this, he says, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. He suffered to make certain the offer of forgiveness to all who call on him. Took all of our sins. Felt the full weight of every single one. He died in our place. Fully man. A perfect substitute. Fully God. So that he confounded death and rose victorious. This is the man who went up to heaven. The one who, who came down to be like us in every way. But he didn't leave us. He took our humanity back. Psalm 24 puts it like this. With questions. Who? Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Say, so who can go up to heaven? Now, only the one who is perfect. Uh, only one who's clean enough for a place of infinite holiness. There's only one. The Lord Jesus Christ who lived in that perfection, who died as our substitute, who was raised in our humanity and then was taken up. And Psalm 24 puts it like this. This is what happened when he went up. At the entrance of heaven, it says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? 
the Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Our Lord Jesus, the King of glory, has gone to heaven in our humanity and a man is now in the place of highest authority at the right hand of God. One um, theologian put it like this, he said, in the incarnation we have the meeting of man and God in man's place. But in the ascension we have the meeting of man and God in God's place. And Luke wraps all of that up so succinctly, doesn't he? The words of the angels, this Jesus, this Jesus who suffered and died, who rose, this one has been taken from you into heaven. The Lord Jesus is going up. That's the first movement. The second movement, the Lord's Spirit is coming down. The Holy Spirit has always been active in the world, active in creation, speaking through the prophets, there at the conception of Jesus in the, in, when Mary became pregnant, empowering the ministry of Jesus. Verse 2, the Spirit is in the teaching of Jesus. But there's something new that's going to happen. And our passage touches on this newness in two ways. It speaks of the Spirit's baptism, and the Spirit empowering. Look at verse 4. Jesus commands the disciples, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. John baptised with water, but in a few days you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift promised by the Father. The, the, The weight of those Old Testament promises about the new age dawning, the new creation coming, the kingdom of God filling the earth, the Spirit is at the heart of that. We see it in, in, well, throughout the prophets. One example is in Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel, God makes it abundantly clear that, that, that sin makes people intolerable to him. But then God says, I'm going to act for the glory of my name. And the wonder of the gospel is that God is glorified in his saving mercies to people like us, the undeserving. God says he's going to come, he's going to get his people. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean." Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Those who have clean hands. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you. I will be your God. I will save you. And then Ezekiel 37, we have the valley of dry bones uh, where, where death comes to life. And then the Lord explains why. This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. That's the promise of the Father. He will put his spirit in his people. The holy presence of God will reside in the hearts of his people and the new age will dawn. We'll see in Acts 2 the same promise through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. In the last days, when when this age comes to an end and the new age begins, and the plans of God reach their fulfillment, God will pour out his spirit. And Jesus says to his disciples in our passage, it's just a few days away. Not long now you will be baptised, you'll be drenched, washed with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was preparation. To get ready, because Messiah is coming, you've got to repent. The Spirit's baptism is consummation. That the Messiah has come and his work is done. And the new age has begun. The new age has broken in because the kingdom of God is here. And, and John, said, John said at his baptism, there is one coming after me who's so much greater than me and he will baptise with the Spirit. 
See, this Lord's Spirit, he is the promised gift of the Father who comes from the hand of Jesus. Because the Lord Jesus is going up so that from that place of power, he might send down the Lord's Spirit. A great king show their greatness by giving great gifts. King Jesus has gone up to his heavenly throne. Someone said, one of the first acts of the enthroned Jesus was to open the treasure trove of his love and bring forth a gem of inestimable value. The spirit who gives himself to be so poured becomes the bond between the still incarnate son in heaven and his people still sojourning on earth. The spirit's baptism. And then verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Power, what is the power? It's the promise we've seen, isn't it? The power of God's presence in the soul of man. It's the power to cleanse from sin, the power to recreate and to renew and to change the heart, the power for life out of death and to belong to the new age of the kingdom. It's that power. But in particular... Jesus says, the power to be my witnesses. And as we go through Acts, we will see that power. The Spirit emboldening this ragtag bunch of terrified disciples into those who go before um, all the rulers and authorities and proclaim the name of Christ. They'll have that emboldening power, but I think the sense is deeper and greater. Now Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. These disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit, will witness with their mission to tell of Jesus, but it will be because they are the witness. It's because the Spirit on them is the bond between them and Jesus. Jesus in heaven is with them on earth, not in body, but by the Spirit. And that's what we'll see in the book of Acts. We'll see Jesus continues to do from heaven through his body on earth. These disciples who who are the church, the body of Christ, will be directed by their head in heaven and empowered and encouraged and enabled as the head pours out his life by the Spirit. So has Jesus left us? Has he gone away and are we just abandoned, staring into the sky? Has he left us? Not at all. The Lord Jesus went up so that the Lord's Spirit might come down. I want you to listen really carefully to this explanation of it. It is through the Spirit that things infinitely disconnected, disconnected by the distance of the ascension, are nevertheless infinitely closely related. Through the Spirit, Christ is nearer to us than we are to ourselves. Through the Spirit, Christ is nearer to us than we are to ourselves. That's the power that clothes us from on high, promised by the Father that our Lord Jesus is more present to us now than when he walked on earth. To be honest, this is the thought that's undone me this week. That the Spirit has been poured out, the church has undergone the Spirit's baptism, and now in the church, those who belong by faith to Christ... Our Lord Jesus Christ, the the man Christ Jesus who bears in his body now the marks of his suffering in our humanity is nearer to us now than we are to ourselves. Doesn't that then mean that we are intimately secured into the saving work of Christ? 
Our sins are most assuredly forgiven. But doesn't it mean that we are then held in the closest of fellowship? So even when we're all out of sorts and we don't really know our right from our left and, we're, and we feel all disconnected and confused and when we're not even sure of ourselves, then the Lord Christ, our Lord Christ, by the Lord's Spirit is so much in our hearts. He's so close. He's more close than our troubles. He's more close than our doubts. He's more close than our frailty, more close than our wobbles, more close than our temptations. He's just more close. That's the power that has come on the church, birthed at Pentecost, the church to which we belong by faith today. The power on us that we are Jesus's witnesses because Jesus is in us by the Holy Spirit. So the Lord Jesus is going up so that the Lord's Spirit is coming down and so that the Lord's people are going out. Verse 6, the disciples say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, they knew what the prophets had said. We heard it in Ezekiel 37. The Lord says, I will bring you back to the land of Israel. So if the Spirit's going to be poured out, the disciples think, the new age is dawning, it's the time of restoration. I don't think it's a bad question. Commentators give them a bit of a bad press at this point. I think it perhaps lacks a little understanding. Maybe it's a bit ethnocentric and we'll, we'll see the disciples have got big lessons to learn about about that the nation's being, being brought in. But, but I think when Jesus answers the question, he explains what kingdom restoration is like. Now, the kingdom restoration is to be focused. So the first thing Jesus says is don't get caught up in things you don't need to know. You've not been told. Verse 7, it's not for you to know the times, the dates the Father has set by his own authority. The Father's got a plan for it. That's fine. The Father has a plan that, for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And, and I take that to be that the, the promises to Israel superabounded in the final consummation of the kingdom of God and the new creation. But the Father has a plan. You don't need to know it. You see, it's so easy for us to, to get caught up and focused on the wrong thing. We need to be focused on what's the right thing. And Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. Focused witnesses. You will be my witnesses. The church is Jesus's witness. And we're to go and tell others that there's forgiveness to be found in, in the Lord Jesus who died and has risen, has now ascended on high and is ready to receive all who call on him. The church hasn't got a mission. It is a mission. You are witnesses. The presence of Christ in us sends us. We are witnesses, focused witnesses. Where are we to go? Everywhere. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, the word of Christ is to go. It's to go out until the church comprises every nation and tribe and language. And the mission hasn't changed. Now, this word of Christ came to us. It's why we're here. And we received it and now we are caught up in the missional community. Now our place is directly derived from this. From Jesus going up, the spirit coming down, the church being sent out. And Jesus is still up and the spirit is still down. So therefore, we are still sent to spread and to tell of what our Saviour has done and call others into the life of Christ. And so then we must ask ourselves, mustn't we? What does that look like for us? Isn't the world too much with us? <clears throat> or what's our life organised around? Verse 10, the says they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. 
when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. A kingdom restoration, it must be focused, it must be witnesses, it must be everywhere, but finally it is waiting. The church is waiting, not for the Spirit. The disciples have to wait for the Spirit, but he has come. No, we are waiting for the return of Jesus. He will come back. Our Lord, our head is in heaven, and we as people are on earth. Our home is heaven with the, with the Lord, but our work is here on earth, so we're waiting. But we're not staring at the sky waiting. Not waiting, standing still. Our, our waiting isn't lost without a leader or sheep without a shepherd. Our king is on the throne and his work is done and his rule is untouchable. And his mercy is enough for the whole world to drink full. And his presence is with us, so our waiting is active. It should be active. But isn't the world too much with us? Now why do we spend so much time staring at the skies if Jesus had abandoned us? Are we the church, aren't we? Hasn't Jesus died and, and risen and ascended? Poured out his spirit? Where is the, the fire in our prayers and the, the passion for the lost and the zeal for the glory of Christ? Why are we just so often breathless with busyness rather than breathless with wonder? And complacent in our comfortableness. And just find ourselves standing still, don't we? We're the church. The Lord Christ has gone up. The Lord's Spirit has come down. And we, the Lord's people, we are sent out. But don't we need to hear that rebuke of the angels? Why do you stand here, staring at the sky? Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand. He's done everything needed for salvation. He's opened the floodgates of heaven's mercy going to come back we're waiting for him he'll come in the cloud with power and glory and we we wait for him that's what we're living for that's what we should be living for for our life to come to be home with our jesus and until he comes he speaks through his church we are his church he appeals to the world and he appeals through us our fumbling broken words and lies The Lord Jesus Christ has gone up. The Lord's Spirit has come down. And the Lord's people were sent out. Were sent out. Why don't we take a moment just to ask the Lord how he would have us personally respond to that.